Breaking. 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 Uh, imposter. The imposter. Imposter. Breaking. The imposter. Hey, welcome to the Breaking Imposter podcast. My name is Jermaine Ward. I'll be your host. And today I have with me Tanner McDonald. Hello. Currently, Tanner works as a consultant at MNP, and he's also a founder and CEO of Spark Methods. Tell us a little bit about the industry and what you do in those in those companies. Yeah, so um, my full time job is I'm a consultant at MMP. So um, MMP is Canada's largest accounting firm, and uh, there I do strategy and operations consulting. So um, we work with a group of uh, different clients in Ontario. Some of them are high growth organizations where we're going in to try to improve business performance while they grow. Because a lot of companies, as they're growing, they struggle to maintain certain standards and certain processes and stuff like that because scaling uh, is a very difficult thing to do. So we help businesses scale up um, if they're growing and looking to improve their performance. And then the other side is we do a lot of M&A integration. So um, when mergers and acquisitions take place, there's a whole group of people that try to help those companies come together in the most effective way possible. And I'm part of uh, a team that'll go in and do that. And my specific role is towards the operation. So we look at the technologies, we look at the processes, and we look at the people, and we try to figure out how to best bring companies together so that we can create synergies and create a more effective organization than just the sum of its parts. How did you even get started in that? Um, to move to the consultation of helping businesses scale who are having those problems of that consistency? Yeah, so um, I kind of got lucky. I was graduating from Ryerson University in 2016, and uh, I was in my fourth year. And honestly, I didn't really look at consulting as a career. It's one of those careers that people target really heavily, especially like if you're a business student, you know this. Kids are going out for co-ops in second year, and um, you know firms are coming to recruiting events. It's quite a sort of competitive atmosphere to try to work at a McKinsey or a Bain or one of the big four or something. And I wasn't really in that stream. I was actually more in a startup stream. So when I was in school, I was bumming around a lot of incubators in Toronto, mm. hanging out with different entrepreneurs. And some of my friends created companies. I tried to create a couple companies. And I spent a lot of my time sort of in the startup scene. And I thought that I was going to go and probably work for a startup um, upon graduation. But then it was literally one of those things where I, I met one person um, actually on on my campus, mm -hmm. but not at an event, just kind of in happenstance yeah. and had one conversation. They were actually working at Ernst & Young, which is one of the big four accounting firms. Mm -hmm. And they sort of started the conversation with me about consulting. And then one person who I knew um, in my network who ran a sort of a boutique, a smaller consulting firm in, in Toronto, I contacted him. And I said, hey, you know, I've just been hearing a little bit about consulting and thinking a little bit about strategy consulting and stuff like that. And I want to chat with you about it. And then literally went out for lunch with him a few times. And he was like, you know, we're growing. We're looking to add a consultant. I think it would be a fun opportunity for you to come and work for me. And this is somebody that I've known for for years. Like they're they're older than me. Mm -hmm. Um but I've known them like basically my whole life. And so it was kind of one of those decisions where you're like, yeah, like go and work with somebody who's almost like family. Mm -hmm. um, and then 
one week after they hired me, they merged with MMP, which is one of the largest firms in the country. And they didn't tell me any of that beforehand. Yeah. And so, um, you know, there's, there's differences between working for a small firm and working for a large firm. And I, I didn't really think that I would ever end up working for one of, you know, a, like a large consulting firm. And it just kind of happened like that. And I decided to roll with it. And it's been two and a half years now. I'm really enjoying it. Um, I always say it's like my MBA. Like I, I went to school for business and then I got a second education, like in my first six months as a consultant, because we work with a whole bunch of different businesses. And um, I've probably been in and out of about 40 to 50 businesses in the last three years. Wow. And just seeing that, like going from business to business has taught me so much. So I landed in it and then I kind of fell in love with it. And it's just one of those opportunities that's really hard to move away from once you're in it. And like, what, what about it like makes you feel like, Hey, this is something I want to do. And like, what made you be like, this is something that's great long-term. Well, I think that like, again, the exposure that you get is a big thing because getting exposed to different processes, different leadership styles, different, like you would think that when you went, I thought at least that like, let's say you're going into like a, a, you know, like a food and beverage manufacturer. Yeah. Right. Or somebody that makes like, um, like, like ready to eat foods, like sandwiches and salads and stuff like that. So, um, I've worked with like three different companies that are sort of all within that space and they do things so differently. They have different systems. They have different, like, like the technologies, the softwares that they use are different. Mm -hmm. Um, the people are certainly so different. You see different, management styles like reflected in the business in so many different ways, which is always one of the most fascinating parts for me because yeah. it's cool as somebody coming out of school to get face time with like business owners and executives. Like you're not just dealing with mm -hmm. middle management, but you're dealing with the people who are either the founders or who are um, involved in the higher level running of the business. Mm -hmm. And so when you get exposed to them, you get to see more how, their personalities and their decisions trickle down throughout the organization. And you get this really cool lens on what is leadership? What is management? What does it mean to be effective as a manager? And learning that for, with so many different examples and so many different like live case studies that just carry mm -hmm. out in front of your eyes mm -hmm. is probably the most valuable piece of it for me because I'm so early in my career yeah. that, you know, regardless of like, like when you're a consultant, you're not a manager, you're not a partner, you're doing the, what you would call the grunt work, right? Yeah. Like every industry has grunt work. And so you're certainly the one who's responsible for the analysis and the PowerPoint and all that fun stuff. But while you're doing that, you're also getting exposed and you're getting into these meetings and you're having these conversations. Um, that's really hard to have if you just like go to a company and start working there. Because yeah. how many times do you really see the owner or the top level executive in a company, if you're if you're one of the employees that's working there doing the grunt work, so mm -hmm. it's still grunt work. Everybody in their early twenties, you know, you come out of school. It's not like it's not like you're just shooting to the moon right away. You got to put your dues in. You got to work hard. But while that's happening, I love having the conversations with different people and get to see their different perspectives and how that manifests itself in their business. Yeah, and that's and that's pretty amazing too because you're getting that type of rapid growth 
by seeing so many things that does and doesn't work exactly within industries. And then that's giving you more like of an idea of like, how do you piece it together and how would you do it? How you can make sure that somebody else experiencing similar problems doesn't come and have the same issue. And it seems like it's a lot, very tied together. And I'm like, I'm having an issue where I'm trying to figure out how do you take all these different varied perspectives and kind of sort them so that you're not caught with like, oh, I could do this method, but then this person said that method. So which one's right? And it just seems, it just seems like this with all these different levels and opinions, that's hard to grasp your own concept, especially when you're growing at such a fast pace. Yeah, no, you're right. And that actually kind of cuts a little bit to um, imposter syndrome and all of that. Yeah, because it takes time like you, you know, just speaking specifically to my industry. So consultants, right? Um, people come into consulting from out of school. And, you know, there's there's different firms that do different things specifically on the team that I was joining. Like we were doing a lot, we do a lot of business turnarounds. Mm -hmm. So we we go into businesses that are struggling and we help them, you know, basically keep the ship floating. Mm -hmm. And like my manager literally one day early on in my career was like, Tanner, like, I can't tell you what to do, but what I need you to do is go and fix this business. Mm -hmm. I'm just like, Oh my gosh, like I'm a, <laughs> I just graduated, man. Like, I don't know if I'm going to like, these people have MBAs, like they're even more educated than me. Right. What am I supposed to do? But there was always like, a struggle to, and I, I still like, like there's work that you have to do to be able to figure things out, but you're, you're not going anywhere that people haven't gone before. And like when you're seeing different processes and different systems, um, one thing that's really great is to understand like some key methodologies. Mm -hmm. So we use a lot of like lean methodologies, um, in our implementations. And then also I do a lot of design thinking work. Yep. And so when I'm going into organizations, you know, maybe somebody else would do it different than I would do it. But I have sort of my theoretical understanding of, you know, certain operational best practices or certain ways of going about problem solving. Um, so when I'm facilitating, you know, a meeting or a workshop or something like that, I fall back on my style. And then when I'm looking at other managers or people inside of the business, um, I also have like sort of different things that like, it's not anything that I've created. It's all yeah. sort of academic study around lean and management theory and stuff like that. Um, and there's so many smart people out there yeah. that have sort of documented what's worked. Yeah. And so I go back to them. And, but one thing that we're very clear with, and I'm always very clear with is like, when you hire a consultant, you're hiring like that person. And so if you hired 10 different consultants, you might get three different approaches because we don't, it's not like everything's different, but yeah. people approach problems different ways. Yeah. Um, but coming up with my style was something that was super important for me. And then just having the confidence to, you know, be yourself and take the approach that you know, and that you've seen work in the past. That's very interesting that you talk about it. Like the, there's very much consistencies with like different parts of the process that you could take in and take out but you have your own personal style. So how would you, how would you brand your own style? Like when you approach consultancy and your own growth and things like that, how do you see yourself? Well, I think that like my style, um, I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of different elements. Yeah. I always say that like my superpower is about being able to find people, um, who are smarter than me and bring 
them together unified around a problem. Yeah. And that's sort of what I, what I do mostly day in, day out, um, is not like go in and, and craft all of the solutions, but find ways to bring the right people together around a problem. And then most of the time is spent tactically unifying them and managing them and pushing them forward to solve the problem. Funny, it's funny that you say that because like a lot of the design thinking and even the principles that you just um, said reminds me of like UX process and things like mm-hmm. that. Like you're always bringing other people to the table so that it's not just you having to force the ideas out. Um, do you see that like relieves pressure from yourself when you're going through, when you're having feelings of imposter syndrome or? Yeah, for sure. I mean, like maybe yes and no, because when you're having feelings like that, one of the things that can be difficult is to be around experts Mm -hmm. and to be a part of the process. Like imposter syndrome for me always wanted me to remove myself. And like, I think that it has a lot to do with the fear that it brings out in you, right? Like you're scared of being exposed. You're scared of um, being made vulnerable or something like that. And so you remove yourself. It can definitely be helpful in some ways because when you're forced to solve a problem, like when you're, what happens with our projects is like, you know, if you're a consultant on the project, like you, you have to figure it out. Like, what do you, you're not just going to go to work every day <laughs> and not like try and, and, and figure out the problem. So right. like you're, you're in a, you're in between a rock and a hard place. And if you're there, you really can like be benefited if you find people that can help you and you find experts inside of the organization. Like, you know, there's always somebody who has done it before. And if you can find that person for any, like in a specific sense, like for a specific problem. So like, you know, inside of a company, sometimes it's like inventory, right? Yeah. Like we have different inventory. Um, there's different companies. We do a lot of different stuff with inventory management. Mm-hmm. One of the things that, hurt me early on was like, we would have these, we would have these implementation sessions and like, I would have the solution in mind and I would go into the room and I would be like, okay, like this is what we got to do. We got to convince everybody. And then you get into a debate with people and they like tell you that your idea doesn't make any sense. And you're like, oh shit. Like, I guess that I'm an imposter or whatever. Um, but if you go out first and you talk to people and you get their ideas, um, you know, it doesn't all have to come from your brain. And so yeah. in that way, it can be super beneficial. Yeah. So it's like you become a facilitator of ideas to make sure that if you gather all the resources, gather all the different ways and approaches and then come up with the best solution, but you also don't want to make it only other people's solutions that are driving your thoughts to how it how you could solve the problem. Yeah, exactly. Like you have to have you have to have an approach and you have to have an under because people have a lot of bad ideas, right? Right. So you can't just jump into the room and be like, Oh, every idea is a good idea. You have to have some sort of criteria to evaluate it yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, but at the same time, the genesis of the idea or the inspiration, especially because it's all conversational too, right? So somebody says something that sparks it and then you build off of that. And so, yeah, like the methodologies, And the, like, you know, what I learned in school, right? Like finance and accounting, that type of stuff is super important to provide you with like a perspective that allows you to 
navigate through the conversations. But if you're sitting in a room not having the conversations, you know, you feel, I guess, a little bit less scared. But that's that's a tough place to be because you're not going to grow. You're not going to get past it. Yeah. How do you deal with it when even when you're trying looking to be collaborative where when you get opposition? Um, I look at it like uh, as a good thing for the most part. So like I can just tell you from my own experience in terms of being effective and getting the result that you want, a certain amount of pushback in a group is key. Like if you're working in a team and you have people who are just like agreeing with everything that you say, you're in a really bad spot because they either, (laughs) they either don't care and they, they're not going to do it. And they've already made that decision or they're not thinking critically about it and they're just kind of on autopilot. So if someone's ever pushing back against me, I take it as a good thing. As long as it's in the spirit of, like I said, unification. Like I think that's a really key principle is if the group's unified in that discussion, then you're good. Right. And it's like, um, it seems like a unification on solving the problem. And like for me, just how I look at that and like how I'm hearing it, I'm just thinking that you have to make sure that it always goes back to what's the problem, what needs to be done, who is it helping? And you have to have enough emotional intelligence to know when you're not being attacked if your ideas aren't right. So that because like I, I I know the feeling of um if your ideas are attacked and you really thought about it. And then you get those like slight feelings of like, oh, maybe I'm not that good. Maybe it's not this thing. It's just like that. That is like when you a lack of like emotional intelligence to know like, wait, do I take a step back and really have to evaluate the way that I was addressing the problem or looking to solve it? Or did they not consider a little bit more holistically based on all the information that's on the table on how this could be solved? Yeah. And I think honestly, with imposter syndrome, like failure is a completely separate conversation. Like if somebody says that your idea, like if, if a group rejects your idea or even if like what can be worse is if they pick it and then it's not working because then you're like, oh man, like I'm disappointing these people and my idea was bad. But like, I, I think those are separate things. Like if you're going through a situation where, um, you know, you feel like you're failing, that doesn't mean that you're an imposter. And so, you know, we go into companies and, and, and we work hard. Not everything is, is sunshine and roses. Like there's things that happen that, you know, we would rather not happen. And the stuff doesn't always go our way. The puck doesn't always go in the net. Mm -hmm. And that's where a lot of it hits you is you're like, Oh man, like this isn't working. You know, I don't know what I'm talking about. I shouldn't be the one leading this. I shouldn't be the one, you know, having this conversation or making this decision. But that, I think those are two separate things. Like, and I still fail all the time, but I, I'm, I feel less like an imposter than I used to. I think just because like, I, I don't think of them in the same way. Yeah. And if you, it's, it's I'm listening to that. I'm like, it's a slippery slope because mm-hmm. a lot of the times it could be a perspective of like the perception of being an imposter because you failed. And if you put the two together, then that's when you start getting a snowball effect of, I can't do this. I'm not meant to do this. I'm never meant to do this. I keep trying and I keep failing and it's not, and it's like, it kind of could, it could kind of compound that. And I like how you said that you should separate the two because it could give action towards getting mastery over the thing that you feel like an imposter for. 
And it could give you more confidence in yourself of, hey, maybe I could do this a little bit more. Maybe I could continue moving forward without having to worry about that I'm a complete failure if it doesn't work yeah. the way I want it to work or I expect it to work. Yeah, because like straight up, you'll never feel like an imposter if you're successful. Like when things are going good and you know every shot's going in, yeah, you're not going to feel like an imposter. You're going to feel like a million bucks. It's only when you start failing that you start feeling that way. But if you associate failure with that, then, you know, you're, you're less likely to take risks. You put yourself in a situation where, you know, there's, there's just going to be a, a lot of negative self-talk because every time you fail, you're questioning whether or not you're an imposter and you shouldn't question whether or not you're an imposter when you fail. But obviously, when you're successful, it's not as much of a problem. It's only when you start to fail that you have to start to, like, get that voice out of your head. Yeah. <laughs> Reassess and figure out. Mm -hmm. So when was when was the time that you felt, like, personally, that you'll be exposed as a fraud? I think that the the probably the times when it happens is, like, usually when I'm presenting an analysis. Because we do, like, we do financial analysis, we do operational analysis. You know, when you do that, you're, you're, you have to make these assumptions, right? So yeah. you build a model. <laughs> Models are based on assumptions. And then you go into the meeting and you're, and you're presenting. And you're always scared that, like, your assumptions were wrong. Mm -hmm. And so that's where, you know, we make assumptions as professionals based on you know, sometimes other analysis that we've done, but sometimes just based on what we know as to be best practice or knowledge that we have. Right. Right. And so, you know, if, if you're making it based off of knowledge that you have and someone says you're wrong, you're like, oh, maybe I'm not smart enough to be here. And so that can be that's that's probably when it was when it was the worst. Yeah, it just that sounds like it's a bit of perfectionism that's mixed in it. It'd be like, oh, I have to know everything in all the scenarios, all the use cases, all the data points, right. all right. the statistics. Like, if I don't, if somebody finds that chink in my armor, that it's like, oh, have I been doing this wrong the whole time? Is my method flawed that they were able to see this insight and I didn't? Or like, yeah, and that's a huge thing, man. Like, where are the reasonable limits of? like where you're supposed to be, what your like knowledge is supposed to be or what your performance is supposed to be. When you're, when you have feelings of imposter syndrome, sometimes it's because like you've inflated it so much that you're like, Oh yeah. Like, Oh, I should have, I should have known that. Or like, mm -hmm. I should have figured that out or I should have said or whatever. Yeah. And it's like, well, who do you think you are? Like, you're not Superman. <laughs> you're not freaking Albert Einstein. And you're sitting here beating up yourself. Like you're like, you have some sort of crazy superpowers and you don't. So it's like understanding too, like where the the upper and lower limits of where you're at should be in placing those. Obviously, you want to stretch because you want to grow. Right. So you want to place them in 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 an area that feels slightly out of reach, but at the same time being reasonable enough to say, okay, I'm not superhuman. So yeah, there's going to be times where I make mistakes and stuff like that. Right, and even if you use like situations like um people like um albert einstein and superman they still have confined limits too that they have to deal mm -hmm. with so it's like not <laughs> yeah. even like they want to go and be like oh yeah why didn't einstein develop 
um, a teleportation pod if he was that smart. It's like it, it's not right. within his time. He did within the confines of his of his strength and his inability. Superman's a little unfair because he could just do whatever with yeah, different types of sun. Yeah. <laughs> but and you're absolutely right when it comes to the fact that you have to find out your own limits and really pay attention. I think that's like a self-awareness that has to come from like who mm-hmm. you are and what you want to accomplish, what your limits are and like what course corrections you could take. Right. So what do you like what do you think when you hear people say things like you can be anything you want to be? Cuz I think that's one of those messages that's like kind of tied up in this whole in this whole issue. Yeah, it's it's weird. Because um, like even what brought me to this podcast and things like that is you can be whatever you want to be is tied in with people telling you what you should be, right? Right. And I think the major issue is because those two are at like a perpetual conflict that lots of people have difficulty finding out what they want to do and within the limits of their ability, how they can get there. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just like, you can do whatever you want to do. Is like you have to be realistic. Where it's like I'm not going to fly if I want to fly, mm-hmm. but if I want to start my own business, I have to look at like how realistic does that look to my situation? How does it look to other people's situation? And I'm not somebody that could tell somebody like it's going to succeed, it's going to fail. But there's ways of increasing the odds of it happening to become whoever you want to be, and you just have to be aware of like. If you're moving in that direction and it's not working out, that's when after you take action, that's when you have to figure out like, okay, does this actually still make sense? Do the numbers add up? Is is like it's proven because from where you are now, I think you still could do pretty much whatever you want to do. But you have to kind of when you're going in that direction and you start taking the action, you have to make yourself know like, hey, maybe this is not working out how I expected because of X, Y and Z do I have to change my direction a little bit? And I think that's where it comes from. Cause like you could dream, you could work towards it, but you have to stay within the reality of your actions and the results that you're getting and kind of mm-hmm. make ch- adjustments there. But then there's also like the chance of luck where you don't even know. Cause like if going off of actors, you'd be like, anybody could be an A-list actor right. that goes, yeah. to, goes for acting and wants to act. But like, there's a bit of something that's like out of your control. That's like, oh, somebody really liked you. You did really well in that role. It was critically acclaimed. Boom. Mm-hmm. Now you're that superstar A-list status actor. Right. Right. Got your break. Yeah. So it's it's like a weird mixture of different things. But I think that we definitely have the power to define how we want to be char- characteristically. Right. So like you don't have to get all the monetary outside conditions, but if you want to be a better version of yourself and kind of have that image where you like feel like that, I think that's possible. Like you want to feel like you're a millionaire and like you treat people and you're generous and all those things that you want to do with being a millionaire. But I don't think it's um reasonable to say that, Oh, I'm going to be a millionaire by tomorrow. And it's like, I've been only making like 30 K every year. Yeah, 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 like, yeah. You have to you have to really consider like, okay, how does that how does one do this without just stroke of luck and like through just sheer effort? And are you willing to put in that effort? And if you're not putting in that effort, how much more realistic do you like lower the bar so you have like smaller milestones and like I, it's, there's a lot there's a lot to pack into it, but I think mm-hmm. I think people are told that they're not able to reach for those stars and reach for those things, so they lower their efforts to reach the other people's perspectives of who they are 
Yeah, I I think yeah. I mean, I get what you're saying. I don't know. I I see a lot of the opposite. Mm-hmm. I see a lot of people who are like told that they can do and be anything that they want, mm-hmm. and they walk into every room and they think that like, oh, if they're not the smartest person in the room, they're like a failure or something like that. Yeah. And there's so many smart people out there that you're hardly ever the smartest person in the room. Right. But I love what you're saying about pushing yourself and about growth because I always say to people. And one thing that's been true in my life is that like growth is tied to fulfillment. So when I am growing, I feel more fulfilled. And so I think that that's really important. But I think the core message of you can be anything you want to be is there are no limits to what you should be able to do if you work hard enough. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that that's true. And I think that that's a trap that people fall into where they're just like, oh, like, you know, if I if something goes wrong, then I must have not worked hard. Or I must have been, you know, if somebody else was doing that, then they would have done it right. Mm. And it's like, no, it's not always true. Like people have like limits. And so you have to cut yourself a break a little bit. And you can't always, you know, be like, say, like you, you, you need to cut yourself a break. You, mm-hmm. you really need to like be able to look at yourself and say like, Hey man, like I'm doing pretty good. Like considering everything that's happened and considering everyone I know. Like I'm doing fine. I'm doing all right. And yeah. there can be a lot of happiness and contentment found in that place. Yeah. I think, I think that's where, um, I kind of agree, but then I think it's a premise that shouldn't be considered. And where it's just like, um, my idea is like taking back control for yourself because the premise that I'm understanding is other people are telling you like the sky's the limit and things like that. And what I think is that people should take less away from like what other people consider. Cause like that's going like saying, going from the perspective of like the sky's the limit being told that you're the great and all of that is taking too much power away from you to determine your own life course and what you want to do. Mm. And I feel like a lot of people get trapped in that because now they're not living, as you said, in the second part of your statement, where it's just like, you're taking control, you're thinking about your own growth and your own things. It'd be like, if you start going off of like, Oh, other people think I'm great. Other people are telling me all the things I need to do. And I'm like getting that external validation all the time. It's harder to feel fulfilled if you just take the time back and be like, hey, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to take some time and learn and see what my limits are. Like the sky's the sky's a limit for how I determine it, not for how other people are determining what my limits are and things like that and how much I can do and if I could do everything. So I think if it comes from the perspective of somebody else, it's a lot harder to be like, okay. And you feel like a lot more anxiety. Uh, this is probably like more from personal experience. It might be projection, but like, this is how, this is a perspective I'm looking at. It's like, comes from a place of like, I'm not living up to their standards. Right. Versus creating your own standards and then striving towards them of like how you see for yourself, it should be. I think that's like some a dangerous trap that a lot of people get in where it's just like other people's standards dictate how their life should be. Yeah, I totally, I totally agree. I think like that term external validation, right? Like it's, it's such a thing. And, um, you know, we're all wired people pleasers Mm -hmm. and people pleasing is something that I've been addicted to at different times in my life and like has, has benefited me a lot. Like, you know, not just professionally, but also like personally, right? Like there's something to be said for the fact that like, we 
like, you know, I'll do things for my wife to make her happy. Like, that's not a bad thing. Yeah. And do I like it like just to do it? No, like I like it when it's acknowledged. But at the same time, yeah, like when other people are dictating to you and, you know, for me, it's like I work with consultants. Like I said, like we're exposed to like executives and business owners, which is great to learn from. But like when three out of the four people in the meeting are all driving a car that's like four times as expensive as yours. Mm -hmm. Like I drive a Toyota, man, straight up. Like I, I love my Toyota Corolla. I've had it for like five years, Nice. but it's intimidating when you get into some situations with people who, you know, you perceive to be super successful. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly like you're setting standards for yourself based on all of these people around you. And you're not really, taking into account even what makes you happy. Right. And then, yeah, you're in a tough spot. You're in a really tough spot because you have all of these, these objectives in your mind and they're not actually your objectives. So they're not actually leading to your benefit. Exactly. And, um, yeah, yeah, for sure. No, I've totally been there and like, it happens all the time, man. Like you see people, you know, that you, that you put the measuring stick against. So like, for me, it's like old friends from university and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Right. Mm -hmm. And you like put the measuring stick up and you're like, huh, like, how am I doing? And like the key to that, I think is just like constantly competing against yourself. So like setting goals, like, I think if you don't have goals, mm -hmm. you know, that's when you fall prey to that mostly because other people are just going to come in and define that for you if you haven't defined it for yourself. Yep. And if you define it for yourself against yourself, then you're in a spot where like, yeah, you know, you have, you know, comparison and jealousy and stuff like that, but you can very quickly return to like, okay, well I'm doing, you know, way better than I was doing six months ago. I'm doing way better than I was a year ago. And that's yep. a great feeling. Right. Yeah. I think, I think that's, that's a great way to end off like this segment. <laughs> at the beginning yeah. and yeah it's a lot of so definitely something where we take our personal power back which is which is incredible for the next part i just wanted to just get some rapid fire questions and get some ideas of like areas in your life which you could share with the audience and let them get value from you directly yeah so first question is what is one attribute that has contributed to your success and growth I think that, um, honestly, I could go with like three different things. Um, I would say hard work is probably the most important though. What are the other two? <laughs> the other two is, um, being fun to work with. Yeah. I think like being funny and being like enjoying what you do and being fun to work with is a huge thing that not a lot of people actually focus on. Yeah. That can, that can be, um, super beneficial. And then the third one is like listening skills. And being able to listen and, and ask questions and stuff like that. Yeah. And who has been a great inspiration for you? There's so many, man. I think one person that always comes to mind when people ask me that question is my roommate in college whose name was Alex. And um, Alex was a kid who, um, like, he had a lot of good reasons not to be a, uh, where he was. Like, he, he was a successful university student, did a bunch of stuff around the campus, and just like in his personal life, like, and, uh, he had dyslexia and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. It was like, if there was one person who had an excuse or one person who like had so many barriers put up in front of them, it was him. And he just was such a hard worker and always had such a good attitude about school and about like living life and just getting the most out of it. Mm -hmm. And he's always the person when people ask me that, that I refer to. Nice. 
Who has been your biggest cheerleader for your success? Yeah, hands down, my mom and dad. Nice. I think that I hope everyone can say that because that's such a it's such a key backdrop. Hmm. Having somebody in your corner. <laughs> yeah. What's one lie you had to stop telling yourself? That hard work will solve everything. Hmm. Uh, what's a hobby that you do outside of work that keeps you grounded? Mine's cooking. I love cooking. It's a full sensory experience. I just started doing it um, a few years ago. And it's one of those things where you get this, you get a beautiful, tangible result at the end that you can enjoy. Mm -hmm. And um, cooking is one thing that I go back to all the time when I'm feeling stressed or, um, you know, even just like relaxing and hanging out and stuff. Cool. That's cool. Um, what's the best advice you've ever received? The best advice that I've ever received that I still keep in mind and that I need to listen to is uh, it's from, I don't know if you've ever heard of Hamilton, the play, but in Hamilton, there's a line in one of the songs where the character says, talk less, smile more. And somebody, somebody, when they like, I heard that and it stuck with me. And then somebody else acknowledged, they were like, Oh, when I heard that, I thought of you. And I was like, thanks. <laughs> I guess I really got to pay attention now. Yeah, it's like you got it in your brain to just talk less, smile more. <laughs> mm -hmm. If you had 60 seconds with yourself when you came fresh out of high school, what advice would you give to him? I would say go to class. <laughs> what is one book that you'd recommend? The book, the um, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. I don't know if you've had the chance to read it, but um, my dad bought me that book when I was 10 years old. What? And <laughs> yeah, it was like the first like chapter book that I ever read. And I've read it probably four or five times over the years. And I've given it out as gifts probably half a dozen times too. And I always get value from it. The people that I give it to always get value from it. It's such a timeless, timeless um, methodology for just dealing with people and getting positive results. Nice. And uh, what's, a, what's one piece of parting advice that you have for our listeners? I would just say that if you're struggling with imposter syndrome or if um, you're in a situation where you want to help others, like just talking about it and talking about it by name, like people have come up to me and said like, hey, have you ever heard of imposter syndrome? And I think the more that we talk about it, the better off we'll be. It's to me just sort of like a, a smaller vein of like mental health where you know, PTSD, right? Like mm -hmm. having a term for it, um, I think is super important because if people know the term, then they can sort of position it in their own brains mm -hmm. um, a little bit better. So I would just say like, do some research on imposter syndrome and talk to people specifically about um, imposter syndrome. Great. And how could the listeners best reach you? Best way to reach me is email tanner.mcdonald at mnp.ca. Awesome. Or via LinkedIn. And I'm getting uh, getting a lot of messages now on LinkedIn, so it's a little bit harder. But um, <laughs> you can always reach out via LinkedIn. I'm glad I made it through the, the many messages. <laughs> yeah. I think people are setting up more chatbots than they used to. It's not like everybody's reaching out with some cool thing, right? It's oh, just no. like, hey, are you looking for a web developer? Oh. Uh, I get a lot of that. <laughs> <laughs> I know that feeling. Be like, oh, copy paste your name here. It's personalized. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Everybody's working off some software right now, I think, just sending out mass LinkedIn messages. Yeah. Tanner, 
Thanks again for taking the time to speak with me. I had a really great conversation. I learned a lot, actually. And it's just amazing hearing more perspectives. And I hope to hear from you again. Yeah, man. I appreciate the opportunity and super excited to see where all this goes. All right. Take care. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. All right. You too, man. Thanks for listening to this episode of Breaking the Imposter. To stay up to date when episodes are released or to become a guest on the podcast, you can visit our website at www.breakingtheimposter.com. Follow us wherever you listen to podcasts so we can make sure the imposter stays broken.